I want you to look at your hands. Like, I want you, I'm going to have to stay there for a little bit, okay? Think of the detail and care that he's made your hand with. Look at it. Feel it with the other one. How it bends. The way it holds things. The way it can both strike or, or soothe. That it can carry things or caress. And look at your hand. Every wrinkle, every freckle, every skin tone that you might have, peachy or wheat-like or golden or rich mocha, whether your hand is large or small or smooth or rough, whether it is scarred or ringed or mangled or manicured, it is your hand. And God made it for you. And God made it part of you. And it tells the story of the majesty of God and the glory of being human. Now, I want you to close your eyes. You're going to have to do this for a little while, too. Think back to a time when you were outside at night. No city lights around. It's clear and crisp. And in that darkness, you can see the stars, and not just the stars, the textures between the stars, the layered galaxies far away. You can see different colors, those hues of red or blue or gold, those nights and sights, they give you the same perspective as as this psalm does for your hand. Wonder in the cosmos that God made it for you and for you to marvel at. God made you a part of it. And heavens tell the majesty of God and the glory of being in this world. When you read Psalm 8, it's pretty straightforward, frankly. It's clearly a song for a choir, says that. It is written for a stringed instrument called the getith. It is a, a song, a hymn of worship. And like most songs... It has poetic elements in it. Um, it, You know, it begins and ends with the same phrase, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. It is written in verse. Um, If you could read it in Hebrew, you would hear the rhymes in it, both in the middle of the verses and at the ends. Um, It also has this, like, clicking consonant sound that goes on, so it's clearly made for you to enjoy the beauty of as well as the content. They have the, it has the usual elements of a hymn of praise, declaring God's majesty and the wonder of his reign over the earth, the beauty of his creation, abounding in power and grace. But it is a different kind of psalm as well, because there's not like a real clear conflict going on. There's no crying out. There's no lament. There is no complaint. Um, there's not any kind of overcoming of sin. Don't worry about that. Babies are, we're in baby mode right now. It's all good. No, there's actually no complaint. There's no overcoming sin. There's no statement about salvation in it. There is no rescue, no atonement. There's none of that in this psalm. And then there's this weird image in verse 2. From the mouths of babies and infants comes strength. A strength strong enough to silence the foes of God. And all that said, Psalm 8 gives us a singular meditation. You don't have to be a poet 
or a literary critic to realize that when any piece of poetry or lyric starts with one verse and ends with the same verse repeated, that that's probably something. It's probably the something that he's talking or she's talking about. It's the hook of the hymn. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Not a question, a declaration, how majestic. I want to slow down on that and do kind of an amplified version of that verse because it repeats one and nine. O Lord, this is in most of your translations, it has capital L-O-R-D in there. That is the language of Yahweh, the covenant God, the one who made the promises. And then our Lord, the one who is the ruler of all, kind of a more normal sense of the word Lord. And then how majestic, it's something like mighty and great, uh, powerful and worthy. There's a gravitas to him in your name. How majestic is your name, which is more like reputation, your status, your honor, your gravitas again. And that is in all the earth, from pole to pole and from east until west. And that is the hook of the hymn, to have us be in awe of God, to worship, to sing forth God's worth. But not just God, God who is Yahweh, the covenant God, who made the cosmos, who has a name, Yahweh, who has a history, both in creation and redemption of people to himself. See, David is trying to get into our hearts, minds, and souls to recognize reality, the reality that God is who he is, and that rightly valuing that and what he's done, rightly being in awe of who he has said he was and what he's done and what he's doing in the world. In order to do that, he writes a poem and sets it to music, gives us musical direction in it. Because, you know, whenever you have a good song or something like that, that's when it gets through some of your intellectual barriers. It gets right to your soul. Because he knows that just giving you that data is a bit of a problem. We don't always accept it because we live in a world where awe is too too rare. We live in a church where awe is too rare. And we live in our own bodies where awe is too rare. And we live in a world where our worship is skewed. And we live in churches, even our own at times, where worship is skewed. And we live on our bodies, minds, and souls where worship is skewed. But we were made to have our thoughts of God, our worship of God, take our breath away. The average human has 23,000 breaths each day. But we're supposed to miss a few in our relationship to God as we wonder Him. Mako Fujimara one of the great artists in our day, incredible philosopher and theologian, says, perhaps the greatest thing we can do as a Christian community is behold. Behold our God and behold his creation. And so that's why David brings us this choir full of worship and song and says, O Lord, our Lord, How majestic is your name in all the earth. And he starts and ends with it. Now, the rest of the middle parts of the psalm give us the reasons for such a thing. 
or at least two of them. It's not all the reasons that you read through the Psalms or anywhere in worship um, or, uh, uh, in the Scriptures. Worship is for lots of different reasons in the Scripture. But two in Psalm 8 are super interesting to me. One is because of the heavens, and two is because of the humans. Because of the heavens. Verse 1 says, you've set your glory above the heavens. And then in verse 3, it says, when I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, I love that so much, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place with your fingers. What is man that you're mindful of him? And the son of man that you would care for him? I mean, this is really simple in some ways, but utterly important and full of awe in others that we're supposed to like look up and be in awe of the heavens. Like, it's really that simple. Like the moon and the stars. Behold the textures and the, and, and, and the beauty of it all. Imagine the vastness and the distance. Try to count them. Give it a go. It's supposed to overwhelm you. Exhaust your brain and heart thinking about how many trillions of stars you can't see. Let it blow your mind. David says, look up. That's where you'll see the fingers of God's work. The work of God's fingers, sorry. You don't actually see the fingers. He doesn't actually have fingers. Anyway, consider the heavens, one translation says. Earth is an incredibly fantastic planet. It spins at 1,000 miles per hour on its axis. 19 miles per second to get around the sun. Consider the heavens. The sun is 109 times bigger than the earth, and we kind of got a mini sun. Because there is a sun out there that is 15,000 times, or 1,500 times, our sun. Though I could say 15,000, and you wouldn't know any difference. But, you know. The vastness is the key. The speed of life, light gets around the earth 7.5 times in a second. What? I mean, we have two PhDs in, in uh, physics here. So talk to Timo or Tim Wagner and let them blow your mind. There you go, physics in the house. Um, talk to them. Let them blow your minds. Don't be afraid to pick up an old textbook or in your new textbook, kids, and just let yourself wonder. I'm sending you a website, uh, uh, excuse me, an article from a website from, called Biologos, and um, the, the article is called Astronomy and the Glory of God. I was in a deep dive this week, y'all. I was just... I could have just rattled off numbers that I wrote down and didn't remember. Uh, but it's awesome. Except for all of this, never forget that the purpose is awe and wonder. And so we want to ask God that we would never leave a sunset without a smile and joy. This happened last service too. So many of you, when I talk like this, you got smiles on your mouth. You have smiles on your faces. That we would have some type of wonder in it. Never, never stargaze without asking God to let you see the work of his fingers. And then just enjoy it and let it turn to awe, maybe even to, oh Lord, my Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. So that's when David pivots. He's like, you did all this? Who are we? What is man that you're mindful of him? And the son of man that you would care for him? And the clear answer is, seems like it should be, 
Well, not much. Have you seen Jupiter? They're kind of meh compared to Saturn. But the scriptures teach the absolute opposite of it. We worship God because of the heavens that he has created and also the humans he has created, which is a joy because of the humans now. You made him, this is David talking to God, you made him, humans, man, a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. Remember your hand. We praise God for it. It in itself and ourselves, both corporately and individually, are crowned with glory and honor. A little lower than the heavenly beings. The heavenly beings, it's a kind of a bear to uh, translate. People try different things. It's actually the word Elohim, which can mean God, angels, or heavenly beings, which is the easy way out. Uh, actually, the way Michael translated it in, um, in his song, uh, a little lower than the divine with a lowercase d, that kind of gets the feel of it. It's, again, an image. It's not doing profound theology other than, look how important humans are. Either way, it's super important stuff. So, kids crown, you can put it right on your head. Big kids, you can do it too. Actually, I'm really hoping the big kids will do it, by which I mean the adults. I hope it feels awkward, because it is, because we're not used to that kind of stuff. But I'm reading straight from the scriptures. This is true. God crowns humanity with glory and honor? That his glory is beyond the heavens, and then he brings some of that glory a little lower than the heavenly beings to us? You have honor and weight and importance, dignity that is derived from the Creator. You bear his image. You receive the glory of God by virtue of you being part of humanity. Now, that dignity comes with purpose. In fact, it's tied to its purpose. You've been given dominion, which is like stewardship, oversight, um, over the works of your, hand, of, of your hands. This is so bizarre. You humans, you God, have given him, humans, dominion over the works of your God hands. So God made these works, and then we have our hands on his handiwork. All the things are under your feet. Now we have to bring fate into the situation. All sheep and oxen and beasts of the field, and birds of the heavens and fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. Did you see the new, uh, new, it's not new to, it's new to us, um, the new octopus species they found? Looks kind of like Batman, another rabbit trail today. It's awesome. Really, really deep. We just didn't, hadn't seen it before. All of this God made us stewards of. Stewards of the work of his hands, his finger work. He gave us the earth and the animals, and we have dignity because we oversee. We are caretakers of this world. Now, so in our tradition, we, we, we struggle with both, well, less with the kind of like having uh, caretaking over um, creation. We, have, we did some good stuff there, but, but the dignity of humans that's kind of an Achilles heel for our tradition because we come from the Calvinist Reformed tradition, which has a very high view of our brokenness and fallenness. I am a Calvinist. I have a high view of our, of our uh, brokenness and fallenness, our depravity. But the Bible is just as strong and powerful about our dignity. 
and the created intent of who we've been made to be. Each one of you, each one of your family members, each one of you who has a family member or every family you could ever think of under the earth in any zip code, in any county, in any state, in any country, throughout the eras, both in the past and the future, has been crowned with glory. That matters. Now, some of us are like, yeah, I get it. I know I'm crowned with glory. And others are like, oh, they're crowned with glory. And others are like, they are definitely not crowned with glory. But it's still true, whether, whatever you think about it. Let yourself be amazed by the richness of humans, all their languages and, and cultures, all their differences and similarities. Enjoy it. Celebrate it. And remember that it is about for the purposes of praising God. And we need to rethink how we think about how that lives out in the world. We really are on this mission to caretake the world and all his creation, which includes one another, to the ends of the earth. And I don't care if you like, kind of work on spreadsheets or bedsheets. Like, it, it doesn't really matter what your job or vocational role is. One of the beautiful things of the Reformation was um, that uh, the doctrine of, of, uh, of uh, sola del gloria, all things can be done for the glory of God, where you didn't have to be a priest or a, a clergy person in any way. You could go, like, do stuff in the world, and you could bring glory to God in it. I mean, when the Reformation hit, they, they were like not painting crucifixes as much. They're painting chickens because chickens matter. Because it was part of the beauty of what God created. It was revolutionary. You have a purpose for the flourishing of this earth. You are a caretaker of this world and one another. And in a world of confusion about identity and self and uh, we just can't forget that we, all of us, are marked by a kind of dignity and beauty and purpose that comes from the God who made us. I think we, we have become too cynical for our own good on this stuff. And we do it in the name of the brokenness and sin of this world. But the, the solution to be found here is not to say, oh, then therefore, the other parts of Scripture that talk about our dignity must go away or play second fiddle to it. The problem is you have to live in the tension like a lot of things in Scripture, that both can be true at the same time. G.K. Chesterton says, if you want to find balance, it's not by narrowing the edges. It's like walking a tightrope. The longer the pole, the better balance you get. You ain't walking Niagara on a, on a ruler. It's weightier on those ends, and it brings you down into reality and stability. And it may make you go, oh, Lord, our Lord. How majestic is your name on all the, in all the earth? This goes for the way you think of yourself and the way you think of others, to those that you naturally vilify, the ones that find, you find hardest to respect. What if in those moments we stopped and kind of read through the psalm, this psalm, when you find no meaning in your work or no meaning in another person's work, either by the valuing of that wage or the actual work that they're doing, you go, oh, but Psalm 8. I would love it for uh, the church to stop using the language, well, I'm only human. It's not quite accurate. I get the sentiment. I'm for the sentiment, just not the language. 
Actually, we're less than human and we're not fully, we're being a little anti-human when we work towards the brokenness of the world. Or we sin or fall. As humans, we were made beautiful with all the dignity that comes from God. Now, I get it. I've been with humans before. They can be problematic. There is true depravity in this world and in my heart and in your heart. And you have Bible passages that say both. You do. Schultz famous quote, the line between good and evil runs not through states or classes of people, he means, or political parties, but through every human heart. It's absolutely true. Humans are people who cheat and then lie about it. We sell our soul for a few bucks, and we sell our soul, we sell other souls for profit. We can be despicable. We hate people that are different than us sometimes. We care more about our freedom than our neighbor's good. But I'm telling you, we need to hold these together. As a person who's counseled many people in this room and other places, there are two ways for change that we need to use as we start thinking what needs to disrupt some maybe bad patterns in our life. And you can go down the depravity door and the dignity door, and you can find just as much fruit because both are so scary that you will be made with that kind of dignity and honor and crowned with glory. That's shocking. That you can be a rapscallion, also shocking. And depending on which door that person needs, you can go through both the doors because we need them both. So let's not undo the hard things about brokenness and depravity, and let's not do the, undo the hard things about dignity and glory and honor. It is true that we're more sinful than we thought, but one of the reasons that's true is because we do not realize how much honor and glory we were given or what honor and glory we are given in God's redemption of us. And not just for you, but for your neighbor as well. So, how do we make in our way in the world when Psalm 8 doesn't ring as true? How do we as Christians who, who have lived long after Psalm 8 and have heard the testimony of who Jesus is in the world, how do we think about Psalm 8 in light of his life, death, and resurrection and second coming? Well, actually, you turn back to verse 2 for help. That's the verse that says, out of the mouth of babies and infants, old, the old... Um, term is sucklings, which just means unweaned babies. Um, I'm glad we changed that. Um, In them you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. It's such a strange image. These babies, these suckling children are the point of strength that preys out of their mouths from babies and infants. It's an amazing image. But like many images in Scripture, it begs for further explanation and interpretation. And that's where we get to Jesus. So Jesus actually refers to this passage, and so does Hebrews, by the way. It was the week before the Passover. And Jesus is in Jerusalem, and he's about to head towards his own death in the crucifixion. He goes to the temple, And he sees what's happening there. There are these money lenders that are gouging the prices of the small bird sacrifices 
of, uh, of the people who couldn't afford to bring stuff with them for the sacrifices of the temple. And they were, they were price gouging them. They couldn't have access to the mercy of God in the institution of that day. And Jesus starts turning over tables. He becomes, it's, it's, a, it's a, a vandal's protest against keeping people from being able to be with God. And Jesus actually says, this is a house of prayer for all people, for all the image bearers, for all those who have been crowned with glory. They should have access to this mercy and this forgiveness. They should be able to worship God. They should be able to say, oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. But you're keeping that from them. The town goes a little crazy on both sides. Typically happens when there's a protest. For and against. And they, the people in the streets start teeming and, 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 uh, with the, the supporters of Jesus. And the religious folks are getting pretty frustrated about this. Matthew records it like this. That these teeming masses were made up of children crying out. Hosanna to the Son of God. Son of David, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Religious leaders enraged. They knew what they were doing. They had heard the stuff before that, that Jesus would be the Messiah, the one who has come in the name of God, Son of Man and Son of God. And then Jesus responds to them with this quote. Yes, replied Jesus. Have you never read? It's my snarky version of Jesus. I don't know how he said it. And he reads a paraphrased translation that was very common back then. From the lips of children and infants, you, Lord, have called forth praise and strength. Jesus is saying, I am the fuller meaning of 8-2. This weird image that you've been reading all this time, this is what's happening right here. The children are proclaiming the strength against you, my foes, in this. It's amazing. That the fully man, fully human person would come. The book of Hebrews does the same thing, switches the metaphor, um, or switches the way that you interpret that 8-2. Instead of the children being um, the ones who are proclaiming uh, who Jesus is, he says that Jesus is the ones made a little lower than the, than the um, uh, angels. It's, he says this, but we do see Jesus, who was made lower than the angels for a little while, now crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone, for us. And so if it wigs you out that biblical images can have uh, different um, tributaries of meaning, I'm sorry, it happens a lot. It happens a lot, lot. Enjoy it. Embrace the fuller meaning, my friends, in our Lord Jesus Christ, because there has never been another fully human one since Adam and Eve's fall. And he was the one who was fully human, and took on all our failed humanity in his body, came a little lower than the glory that he was made for beforehand, came a little lower than that in the heavens, to be with us, to forgive us, and to restore us to himself and to his Father and to our place in the world. The only one that could fulfill what it means to be human and, and fully own the dignity and purpose the glory and honor. He actually came with mercy and power, and the mercy was the forgiveness of our sin, and the power was to transform us into our created intent, to let us live and breathe again in that light. And you know what mercy and power are in the Bible? It's called grace. 
And that's what Jesus came to do. The one who created us with dignity becomes our depravity to restore us to dignity again. And this is how we, this side of the resurrection, can say, Oh, Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, help us. Oh, Lord Jesus, help us. Spirit, give us power. Father, continue to teach us of your majesty. Help us have eyes to see the heavens and the humans around us, especially the ones in the places that we find them find it hard to see your glory in them, and that your fingers are still there. And help us see it in us in our own mirrors when we can't see it ourselves. Give us friends and guides to help us see it when we can't see. We pray in your name. Amen.